What a day. First off, have you seen the day of the week that it is? Friday? Huh? Lots going on today. Something called the London Knights Playoff. Yeah, it's written right here. Knights versus Spitfire. Is that a big deal? Versus Spitfire. Yeah, I think it is. It's game one. We're going to have it for you on 980 CFPL. And there is a lot to talk about. We'll actually talk about some OHL playoff type stuff later on. We're going to get into this with Jake Jeffrey. He's been nice enough to hang around. We get this misconception. And I don't know whether you deal with this if you have kids or grandkids that are in sports. But you get the misconception. I hope it's a misconception. That... Coaches will go into the dressing room, the locker room, whatever, and they will ream out their team. They will do the old proverbial peel the paint off the walls if that team is not playing well. And I think that's a misconception in the pros for sure, in junior hockey for sure, and I hope it's a misconception in minor hockey and minor baseball and minor football. I really do. If there is a coach who you find is yelling at your kid's team, A, it's not going to work anymore. Kids don't care. You can yell at kids. They're too desensitized to stuff like that, especially by the time they get to 12, 13 years old. It's not going to work, number one. And second of all, don't have that coach anymore. That should not be happening. That is not the way to instruct. That is not the way to show who you are. And certainly not a way to be a role model. So we'll discuss that a little later. We've got an amazing story. London Knights, Windsor Spitfires, 1979. Remember the year? Smashing Pumpkins did a whole song about it. But 1979, Mike Lerner is going to take us back there because a London-Windsor series nearly wound up in the courts twice. And we'll go through that series and why that took place. We are also going to be talking with Orest Katolik. I don't know if you saw. I actually feel good about this because these guys have accosted my daughter in the past. And I don't like people who accost my children, especially when they're not doing anything wrong. The street preachers, they have been charged under the nuisance bylaw. Can we hear a big cheer for that? Enough of those guys. Seriously. I've seen enough people who have come back visibly shaken from places because of those people. I have no tolerance for them whatsoever. And to see that they've been charged, let this be the first of many. We're also going to talk about Lynch Syndrome Awareness Day. And we're going to do our best throughout the show to build some really good vibes. Because it is game one. Night spitfires. It'll be a fun night in old London town as the playoffs begin. So we want some good vibes. So we'll talk to Nathan McFadden of Fanshawe College, where there may be some of the best vibes anywhere right now, based on the seasons that their teams have had. Lots to do on the show. The first thing we need to do, though, we need to tackle a bit of a serious story. Because earlier today... London police came forward, and on the 10-year anniversary of the murder case of 25-year-old Lisa Leckie, they shed some new light. They brought out something that had not been seen before, and that is a note written on a typewriter left behind by 25-year-old Lisa Leckie's killer. That's when it gets... Absolutely chilling 
And earlier today, 980 CFPL reporter Andrew Graham was at a news conference where the head of the London Major Police Crime Section, Detective Sergeant Alec Krigsman, spoke. And first off, to kind of help all of us put some perspective on this, because it has been 10 years, Detective Krigsman went through details of the murder. In March 2009, Lisa Marie Leckie was a 25-year-old mother of two sons, aged eight years and eight months. She, her common-law husband, and her youngest child lived in apartment 314 at 390 Southdale Road East here in, in London. On the evening of Monday, March 23, 2009, the family was together at the home until her partner left at approximately 8.30 p.m. to work at a night shift at his job in another area of the city. When he returned uh, the next morning at approximately 6.55 a.m., he entered the apartment and found Lisa deceased in the living room. He found their young son unharmed in his crib in one of the bedrooms and he called 911. A post-mortem examination revealed that Lisa died of asphyxiation and that her death was determined to be a homicide. So that is the head of London Police Major Crime Section, Detective Sergeant Alex Krigsman, and the details of the murder. I mean, this is an unsolved case, and that's why there is some hope that bringing new details to light could make a difference in this. Now, Detective Krigsman went on to illustrate that the killer was very likely, or almost certainly, someone that Lisa Leckie knew, and then talked about the note that the person left following the murder. While I can't discuss uh, what the note said, I would tell you that it was produced on a typewriter, which even in 2009 was unusual. The typewriter was determined to be an older, um, impact style model typewriter with a fabric ribbon. We're providing this information to you uh, with the hope that this piece of information will tweak somebody's memory. And there's the idea in all of this. They are bringing to light the details of a very sad case, a very sad murder. You heard the detective mention Sean Lackey, who was just an infant at the time and or I sorry he was he was eight at the time I guess um he was eight at the time of his mother's murder and he's now hoping that someone is able to come forward shed some light and in fact we heard earlier today at the news conference detective sergeant Krigsman saying hey it's been 10 years but police are also pleading with anyone who might have information to please come forward. This event is unforgettable. I don't believe anybody uh, would forget about this. I don't believe a memory of this would fade. I mean, we're appealing to members of the, the community who may have information to come forward. I would say that anybody who thinks that what they have to say may be insignificant, uh, doesn't matter, uh, think again. Please pick up the phone and give us a call. You never know. I mean, the number of tips that come in to police allow them to at least look through different avenues. And that's an opportunity for this right now. We're talking about a 25-year-old whose life was really just beginning. Two children, one who was eight, one who was an infant. And now we've got a little more detail, something that maybe hadn't been known before, hadn't been brought to light before. A letter 
that is in a typewriter, and while they can't talk about details, they're hoping somebody recognizes that and says, you know, that makes me think about something and comes forward. So please, if you can, contact London Police because this is one of those cases that you absolutely want to have solved. It's always been thought that Lisa Leckie's murderer was someone who knew her. And you think, well, that, that makes it so easy. You narrow down the people that knew her and you find the guilty person. It doesn't work that way. But any little tip can help. So if you do know anything, please contact London Police Services or Crime Stoppers and make sure that you get those details in so that police can follow up on that. And maybe, just maybe, we turn a 10-year-old cold case into something that at least has some answers, and with those answers, has some closure. So that's the first thing that we are looking to do on London Live today. In a moment, we are going to talk about A tremendous, I mean tremendous, with a capital T. If we could put two T's on tremendous, we should do that. Tremendous success story in the city of London. That's next. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. It is almost the weekend, and it looks to be a good weekend. We're going to talk a little later on. If you're looking for something to do, about something you can do. Now, this is not ride a roller coaster. This is not eat a bunch of candy floss. This is not bask in the sun. We're not going to have enough of that just yet. The temperature is not quite warm enough unless you want to play cat and lie down on that little piece of sun that's inside the window. They always steal that. I always feel bad about moving them so I can lie there. We're going to be talking with Kristen Unger, Territory Manager of Canadian Blood Services, because they aren't getting enough donors in this area in the month of March. And here I am being the mouthpiece again. Yeah, they're not getting enough blood donor services. Well, hey, you, voice on the radio guy, have you donated? No. But I have finally probably six months after Cheryl Miller and I first talked about this, put some wheels in motion where we're going to turn this into a little piece of knowledge where it's going to spell out, here is what it takes to actually donate blood so that we kind of Wizard of Oz pull the curtain back and see, okay, this is what it is. If you've donated blood, you're going to say, yeah, you don't need to do that. Yeah, for you, but for the rest of us who say, yeah, what, what does this exactly entail? What does this look like? What does it feel like? What do I need to know? We're going to do that stage by stage. But right now we'll talk about the impact that March has had without enough donors in this area. We'll learn about Lynch Syndrome Awareness Day. We'll do that in about 20 minutes from now. And again, we'll talk with Oris Katolik, bylaw officer in London, and the story about the street preachers being charged. It's one of my favorite stories of the day, actually. One of my favorite stories of the month. Let's right now talk about some good vibes because Nathan McFadden is the manager of athletics at Fanshawe College. And I don't know if you've been keeping track on your fingers of how many championships and medals Fanshawe Athletics has been putting together. The Knights open the playoffs tonight, so we want as many good vibes in the city as possible. So we'll talk about some good news things on London Live. And this is one right now, because they're up to, I think I think we have to borrow another hand. If you were counting them on your fingers, 
there aren't enough fingers for how many titles they've won provincially, and they've grabbed some national medals, including national championships as well. So Nathan McFadden is here to talk more about that. Nathan, how are things? Oh, it's uh, been really, really good and uh, really exciting times for uh athletic department and college this season. But uh, um, very busy for sure, but... Uh, been uh, pretty amazing for what our uh, student athletes have accomplished. Well, given that the London Knights kick off the playoffs tonight, we're trying to find lots of good vibes, and there are nothing but good vibes coming out of what the Fanshawe Falcons have been doing this year. How many championships is Fanshawe up to? I know it's most ever, but let's put a number on this. Yeah, we're at uh, 11 OCAA or provincial championships, which uh has uh, squashed our record from uh, last year of six. So um, we're uh, and we have two more shots uh, today at two more gold medals in uh, that we're in for indoor soccer. So that may be going up here in the next uh, hour or two. But um, yeah, pretty incredible. And then we've won two national championships on top of that. So um, just a, an amazing, amazing year for. Uh, for our college and and uh yeah if you're looking for good vibes you called the right place <laughs> in indoor soccer both the men and the women through to the final yeah the men uh men beat shared in the semifinal in uh uh penalty kicks uh two two to one and then the women uh had beat st Clair uh this morning one to nothing in penalty kicks as well so they went into extra penalty kicks so it was about 10 or 11 i think it got into but uh um they got it done and and uh, good on them, and, and uh, certainly wishing them the best this afternoon. Well, 11 provincial titles and then all kinds of national medals, including, like you say, two national championships. The men's volleyball team kind of went wire to wire this year. Have you ever seen anything like what they pulled off in winning it all? Uh, not in winning at all. We we fell one one game short in losing in the national final last year when we went into that game twenty four and zero. But uh, this year they were ranked number one right from the very first poll at the start of the year, and um, obviously those things are nice. But it also carries a lot of pressure on it week to week to to live up to those expectations. And uh, it was just a tremendous job by Patrick Johnston and our our players to uh, live up to that and then get that. Uh, one that we fell short of last year and and uh, complete the perfect season going 25-0 and and winning the first national men's volleyball championship in our college's history. So they are a real special group of, of people and, and uh, very proud to have them at our college. And um, it was just uh, really, really happy to see them accomplish that goal and kind of reach that top of the mountain that we've been trying to get to over uh, the last uh, four or five years. Nathan McFadden joining us, Athletic Director at Fanshawe College, as we talk about the success that they have had this year. 11 provincial championships, two national championships, maybe a couple words on the other national champion you guys put forth. Yeah, our women's cross-country team uh, were dominant, uh, again, from the uh, start of the season on, um, winning, uh, I think, every race that they went into as a team, and uh, Janelle Hanna leading us uh, certainly as an individual, winning the provincial gold medal um, for us uh, in women's cross country, and uh, just an amazing group of young women, and and uh, really great ambassadors for our college, and um, just a, a tremendous job for for that program. Uh, we've been really again kind of 
trying to push that program uh, to get back to the national championship uh, level over the last uh, two, three years under our new coach, Ashley Vandervek, and she's just done an amazing job in, in recruiting some some uh, top-end student-athletes, and um, we were able to accomplish that goal, and uh, very excited for that program, and uh, they'll, they'll be certainly very strong again next year, so... Um, I don't think we've heard the last of them by any stretch. Well, here's hoping that this kind of continues into the future. We're talking with the manager of athletics at Fanshawe, Nathan McFadden, about the success. Nice positive vibes coming out of Fanshawe. Nathan, before we let you go, Under Armour coming on as a sponsor. Can you talk about the impact of something like that for student-athletes? Yeah, it's it's a big deal when it comes to student athletes. I mean, they're they're the Under Armour's the premium brand when it comes to uh, athletic wear, not just for performance wear, but um, styling and everything that goes along with that. So uh, you see certainly uh, major deals in the U.S. with the U.S. colleges, uh, Notre Dame, probably one of the top ones um, that uh, went to Under Armour a couple of years ago. This is about our, uh, I think fifth year now, fourth, fifth year with Under Armour. Um, we're the first uh, college in the country to uh, be an Under Armour partner. So um, it's something that's worked out very well, certainly for both of us. Uh, they've certainly got a tremendous amount of uh, uh, coverage, uh, press and notoriety uh, with the, uh, the tremendous success that our teams and program has had uh, over that time. Uh, and certainly uh, we've uh, certainly benefited from having their brand uh, on our jerseys and all of our team wear um, wherever we travel and um, to uh, promote their product and again in a very positive manner so um, it's something that's worked very well for both of us and um, something that uh, for a student athlete it certainly is a uh, it really separates you from the pack and that's what we were looking to do um, with uh, with our brand, uh, we put a lot of time and effort into our our branding and and our Fanshawe brand, and this was a great fit for us to uh, have the top premium brand um, that's out there. So, when an athlete is looking to decide where it is they want to go, because those top end athletes will have choices. Obviously, coaching is big. Obviously, location is big. Programs are big, but can that actually factor in for a student athlete? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's uh, all those things that you mentioned are absolutely um, more important than that. Um, you know, academics they have we have to have the right program for them. It has to be the right fit. Um, character has to be the right fit for us. Um, but our facilities are top notch, and and again, just having Under Armour as that top premium brand um, just adds to that. And it certainly is uh, something that catches a student athlete's eye when you're recruiting them. Um, you know, we don't charge our student athletes for a dime for anything that they get at our college. We provide that to them all um, free of charge, which isn't uh, necessarily how it works everywhere else. So, um, you know, they, they understand that, that they're going to be able to have that type of uh, uh, clothing and, and uh, uniforms, um, and it's not going to uh, cost them anything either. So those things uh, certainly factor in into a student athlete's decision, and it's, it's a very... Uh, uh, competitive um, space when it comes to uh, recruiting. So um, you're looking for every single edge that you can get uh, to, to lure that student-athlete uh, to your college, and that certainly is a big uh, big help when it comes to uh, trying to get people to come to Fanshawe.
Nathan, I'm sure you have some calls to make to order uh, construction crews in to build a trophy case large enough to hold everything you've done in 2018-19. Congratulations on the success, continued success, and thanks for the good vibes. Yeah, no, we actually are working on that, as a matter of fact. But, uh, no, it's been a great year, and I appreciate all the support, and certainly go Knights go as they uh, begin their, hopefully, uh, Memorial Cup championship run here tonight. Have a great weekend. Thanks, you, Mike. Nathan McFadden, manager of athletics at Fanshawe College. Good vibes enough for you, huh? I think we all should be just feeling good based on the fact that you get to highlight that kind of championship talent. It's been an amazing year. We're going to learn about Lynch Syndrome. It is Lynch Syndrome Awareness Day. Do you know what Lynch Syndrome is? No. If you don't, then hang around. 12 minutes from now, that's going to change. And in about 40 minutes from now, we'll talk about street preachers who have been charged. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. couple things to know going into the weekend with regard to Knights and Spitfires. They do still have tickets available. And I really have to give a, a big thanks to Taz from the FM 96 Morning Show. He's been trying to drum up a friendly wager. Just, uh, hey, some of the ideas that they had this morning were... Swim in each other's river. So whoever loses the series, either London or Windsor... His morning show and their morning show, whoever it is who would come in for the bet, would have to swim in the river. So he and Jim Kelly would have to dive into the Detroit River. Maybe you shouldn't dive. Maybe feet first into the Detroit River. I know you shouldn't dive into the Thames, but let's say London wins the series, then that morning show would have to come and feet first it into the Thames. You shouldn't even jump from a height into the Thames. Never, no, no, never, never. Or another idea was the winning city gets to write the first sports story of a newscast for the other city for as long as their playoff run lasts. I mean, these are harmless things, and nobody from Windsor would take them up on any of these friendly wagers. Isn't that the fun? And I think these are way more creative. I always hate it when mayors get together. Like for Grey Cup, there's a traditional bet. You know, the mayor of Calgary and the mayor of Hamilton will get together and they will decide what each one will give up should the other... And it's always like, well, we'll give you a six-pack from this brewery and we'll give you some good Alberta beef. And Hamilton says, well, we'll give you a six-pack from this brewery. That's boring. That's really, really boring. They need to stop doing that. They need to have better wagers because they're friendly wagers. And maybe the context is in betting, which will become, and I guess already is becoming, more mainstream. We have issues that can arise from problem gambling, but let's face it, it's going to be in our faces for years and years to come, and it's only going to be more and more and more. But maybe we need to stop calling it a wager. Maybe, can we call it a deal? Can we call it a challenge? Can we call it something like that? And I think that would take away the context of it being an actual bet. So here's our challenge to you. Maybe then somebody would take it up. Because these are fun things, and they can't find anybody in Windsor who will take them up on it. And I know the London Knights are a number one seed, and the Windsor Spitfires are a number eight seed. But 
as Taz liked to mention, and we can think back two years ago, there was a series between the London Knights and the Windsor Spitfires. The Knights eliminated Windsor in the first round. Windsor would later win the Memorial Cup. It was one of those crazy years. Windsor loses out in the first round. Memorial Cup champions. Yeah, didn't you lose? Weren't you eliminated? Yeah. And you won the Memorial Cup. Yes. And you're excited about this. Yes, we have a banner. It's a tournament. And that's it's one of those anomalies of junior hockey that you just have to say, okay, and you nod your head every time it comes up. So the team that won the championship got eliminated. Yep. Hmm. That's, uh, that's impossible. You, you should fix that. That should never happen. But we just kind of nod our heads and go, yeah, need a host team. Makes it more fun. Yeah, so they get to play in the tournament. Sometimes they win it. Okay, moving right along. But Taz was bringing up the point that the Knights were down three games to one. And that's when they made a nice friendly wager with Windsor the last time. And Windsor thought, ah, we got this. And they didn't. Knights won three games in a row and eliminated them. And then they won the Memorial Cup. In a moment, we will talk with Rob Maddock about Lynch Syndrome Awareness Day. If you are not aware of Lynch Syndrome, you need to be because you might have it. We'll talk about it next. This is London Live and Global News Radio 980 CFPL. We are in the middle of a Friday, which means we're almost to the end of a Friday. We have some important things to get to in the next half hour. We're going to talk about a shortage of blood donors. I'm raising my hand. I am one of the shortage, and I'm going to change that. Maybe it'll start today. I know I've said this a couple of times on the show. I try not to do the cry wolf thing. Hey, I'm going to do this. And then somebody emails and says, have you done that? And you think, oh, I haven't done that yet. And I was like shopping for a present. I'm terrible at that. Have you bought that person a present yet? Oh, I was meaning to do that. Oh, no, I haven't. So we'll talk about what's going on in London right now, because we do have a shortage of donors, and we need to change that. So that's coming up in about 10 minutes. Right now, though, we get an opportunity to learn about Lynch Syndrome Awareness Day. And maybe more importantly, we get to become more aware of Lynch Syndrome. Rob Maddock has Lynch Syndrome. He is a guy who has beaten cancer. He is a guy who is dealing with a fight with cancer right now, and he's been nice enough to join us on London Live. Rob, happy Friday. Happy Friday, Mike. Looking forward to the playoffs. They get going tonight, and before we even get into hockey, we wanted to take some time because uh, hockey is one of those fun things in life. Uh, we need to take some time to recognize that sometimes life will throw you some interesting challenges. You're dealing with one right now, but it helps us to learn a whole lot more about something important. It is, of course... Colon Cancer Awareness Month, and today happens to be something called Lynch Syndrome Awareness Day. And Lynch Syndrome is not something that is as well known as any type of cancer. In fact, you might be hearing it for the very first time, Lynch Syndrome. Rob, what is Lynch Syndrome? Lynch syndrome is a genetic condition that uh, affects about approximately one hundred one in uh, sorry one in three hundred Canadians. Uh, it uh, it's a genetic mutation. There's four or five different types of, of genes that that are that are kind of shut off, uh, and this predisposes people to uh, to certain uh, to certain cancers. And if you have Lynch syndrome, you say it predisposes people to certain cancers. What are you predisposed to perhaps getting? 
Well, colon cancer is a big one. It, uh, if, if you carry one of these, one of these kind of deformed genes, uh, it increases your risk of colon cancer by up to 80%. That's, uh, but also, uh, also affects uh, in women uh, uterine cancer, breast, um, uh, cervical cancer. There's uh, various types of skin cancers that are also associated with it, but, but colon cancer is, is certainly the big one. The thing is, you don't necessarily look down at your arm and see, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, I, I do have Lynch syndrome. There isn't a symptom of this. How do you find out you even have it? Really, the important thing to do is know your family history. If there's if there's a family history of any of those cancers uh, along the line, uh, that's the that's the first the first tell, and you should really go out and uh, and and get yourself referred to a genetic doctor. And we've got we've got uh, genetic doctors here in London that that can do that. And then from there, they can just do a simple blood test uh, to 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 look for the marker to see if you if you're actually a, a Lynch syndrome carrier. That actually makes it sound a whole lot simpler than I think a lot of us figured it would be. There are genetic doctors who basically handle things like this? Absolutely, yep, out of Victoria Hospital. Okay, and then if you find out you have it, does it just raise your own level of awareness? When did you find out you had Lynch syndrome? Well, I didn't find out officially it was actually even called Lynch syndrome until uh, until a couple of years ago from my, my most recent cancer diagnosis, but uh, I was diagnosed with with cancer in 1995 at the age of 28 years old, and uh, at that point in time, I really started to dig into my family history, and and we found out a few years later that my cancer uh, was indeed genetic. And my my grandmother had uh, had colon cancer twice. My mom would develop uh, a cancer, a uterine cancer, breast cancer, cervical cancer, and she had a bit of colon cancer as well after my diagnosis. So. Um, but it wasn't until uh, until just a few years ago that we actually found out that this this condition had a name. We're talking with Rob Maddock, and Rob is someone who is helping to raise awareness about Lynch syndrome, which, as Rob admits, he had no idea that he had until a couple of years ago, and you had already battled cancer and beaten it. Yeah, that was uh, that was a challenge in and of itself for sure. Especially at 28 years old, you don't expect to hear, you don't expect to hear cancer, let alone colon cancer. And, and even now, it's it's still kind of looked uh, looked upon as uh, somewhat of an old person's disease. Although we are seeing more and more uh, stories coming out of of, of people uh, under 30 uh, that are that are developing colon cancer. As far as Lynch syndrome goes. It is now something that has a day, which is helpful. Are people doing anything in particular on this day to kind of help that awareness? Other than, you know, we have to thank you for appearing on London Live and, and helping to spread the word that way. But is there something else we can be on the lookout for? Right now, it's just a matter of where everybody's just trying to get the word out because because knowledge is power. So the the more you know about it, uh, the, and the more that you're aware about it, then then uh, hopefully the we can prevent these people, uh, younger people, from getting cancer or, or anybody from from getting cancer. Because if if you know it, then you can be be an act, have, take an active part in the screenings, regular colonoscopies, or, or or other other scopes and other checks for for the other cancers as well. So. Um, just right now, it's just all about bringing awareness and, and making sure people are aware and, and the importance of knowing your family history and cancer. And it's another one of those things where sometimes if you say to a doctor, do I need a colonoscopy? They'll say, no, you're not 45. Or do I need this? No, you're not 50. Or you're not whatever age tends to be the age where you start becoming more aware of that. Is that something that, that you feel, you know, especially among Lynch syndrome, uh, people with Lynch syndrome, is that something that you feel needs to, to change in a way? You, you've got to get those checkups? 
Absolutely. And even, again, when I talked about my colon cancer diagnosis at 28, they weren't looking for cancer. Uh, and then the doctor even said, no, we, you know, we're not looking for cancer. And, and then, you know, they couldn't find anything wrong and just kind of asked off the cuff if I wanted to see a gastrointestinal surgeon. And I said, yeah, sure. I want to find out what's going on. And then they found the cancer. So, um, a, a lot of people are being diagnosed or misdiagnosed with things like Crohn's or colitis or, or, you know, irritable, irritable bowel syndrome. And then it turns out later on, yeah, it was cancer. So, uh, again, the knowledge is power. Know your body, know exactly what may be going on, and if something doesn't seem right, make sure you ask about it. We've got a great healthcare system, as Rob says, we've got genetic doctors right here in this city. You are continuing to battle a cancer right now, but you continue to get some pretty good news about it. Yeah, this is, uh, you're going to make me cry again, Mike. You've done this before. This is pretty amazing because uh, in 2017, in the summer of 2017, when I was diagnosed with uh, with colon cancer uh, again, and uh, the, the tumor was deemed inoperable, and, and uh, I was basically told I had two, two to five years to live. Well, uh, push came to shove, and, and I, I got referred, uh, referred to Princess Margaret Hospital in Toronto, and they enrolled me in, in an uh, immunotherapy trial. And uh, since then, my tumor has shrank 45.5%. So uh, this, is, uh, this is absolutely great news to, to know, you know, two years ago, you're, you're making, making plans and, and making sure that your family's taken care of. And uh, now next week, I'm going to Texas to watch the Cubs play a couple of games. So it's, uh, you know, I'm going back and living my life and, and just getting the word out. Well, thank you for getting the word out and keep up the attitude that you have had because it's been remarkable from the beginning. And uh, you could teach a whole lot of people how to deal with situations like the one you've been dealing with. Rob, thank you so much for taking some time for us today and helping to spread the word about Lynch syndrome. Thank you, Mike. Rob Maddock. One thing to remember, the statistics that Rob pointed to. One in 300 Canadians have Lynch syndrome. Here's the other part of it. 5% are diagnosed. So if you think about it this way, night's game tonight, 9,000 people in attendance, 30 will have Lynch syndrome, but Rob sitting in the stands is the only one who will know about it. Next up, we'll talk about a shortage in London. What do we have a shortage of? This is London Live and Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Time to talk donating blood. Something I've been saying I'm going to do, haven't done it yet. That's brutal. That's terrible. I shouldn't be saying those things, but I am going to do it. Kristen Unger is a territory manager with Canadian Blood Services and joins us now. Kristen, happy Friday. Happy Friday. Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks for being here. I think, you know what? We could make Friday even happier if we could get a few more blood donors out donating blood. We're hearing things about the month of March, Kristen. How would you describe the month of March so far in this area? Well, I've been checking the numbers here in London. They've actually been quite low. We just went through March break, so obviously a lot of people on vacation. Uh, But even after that, you know, pretty slow week, so we're looking for people to come in. And, you know, giving blood is quite easy. It's only an hour out of your day. Uh, and you're helping to save a life, so pretty pretty cool there. 
I'm still going to do it. I know I'm going to get emails after this asking, have you donated blood yet? And I'm going to have to tell each and every one of them, no, I haven't, and I promised Cheryl Miller I would. So we're going to work on that. I'm, I have some ideas, so we'll put those into play because I am going to do this. Now, you sometimes do get hit with questions about, can I do this? And sometimes it'll be, you know, I, I just got a tattoo, which I personally didn't, but some people may have just gotten a tattoo or maybe they're on certain medications. How do you find out about restrictions like that? Sure. So every day in my job, I meet people that say, you know, I would donate blood, but I can't uh, because of this. And they'll explain the reason to me and I'll say, you know what, our criteria has changed. You're actually eligible. So by going to our website, uh, blood.ca, you can take an eligibility quiz. It's a pretty short quiz. And then that will go through all of the basics with you. So a tattoo, for example, it used to be a one-year deferral. Now it's only three months. So all of that changes all the time. Okay. All right. And, and that's, I guess, the important thing to know. Stuff is changing all the time based on research, things like that? Absolutely. So donor safety, you know, we're keeping up with guidelines and standards across the globe. We're one of the safest blood systems in the world. So all of those things, we're looking at kind of what other countries are doing. Other countries are looking at us and keeping up to date on what needs to be done to make sure, you know, donors are safe, the blood recipient is safe, etc. So our tests are obviously getting better too, right, as, uh, you know, as things advance. So that's part of it. We're talking with Kristen Unger, Territory Manager with Canadian Blood Services. As Kristen said, if you missed it, March has not seen as many donors as other months. So if you are a blood donor, and certainly if, if you've never been one before, you can always be a first-timer. I'm still going to do this. I'm, gonna, I'm writing this down right now. I am still <laughs> going to do this. I'm not good with blood, but I'm going to get through this. We'll, we'll get it done. Uh, Kristen, you know what, Mike? I can relate to that, uh, you know, being afraid of needles and and that type of thing as well. But if you think about the blood recipient and someone who's going through, you know, a really hard time, for example, a cancer treatment, you know, and needs a blood product, think of kind of the other side. And that's kind of what helps you get over your fear. I like that. I like that a lot because usually if I'm having blood taken, it's not so much the poke. I don't mind. You can poke, you can punch, do anything like that. I don't mind that. But I don't like thinking of the blood going out. So if I was able to think about other things, that would be helpful. (laughs) Yes. And maybe we need some like, uh, you know, Canadian Blood Services branded blindfolds or something for people like you. (laughs) That's not a bad idea either. I have one that I use on the London Knights bus. I would bring that. Okay, this is this is starting to fall into place a little bit better. You mentioned that it takes about an hour out of your day, and that's it. What would go into that hour, Kristen? Yeah, so an hour out of your day. So you show up, you're going to you know check in, register, then you're going through a series of questions to find out if you're eligible. We're also going to test you know, your hemoglobin, find out if you're actually able to donate, um, your blood pressure, your temperature, those type of things. Once you've passed um, all of the screening questions and you know, the medical check, then if you're approved, you go on to donate blood. Uh, that actually is only between five and 10 minutes. So 
you know, that's a very small contribution if you think about it in, in terms of time. Once you've donated blood, then we have you go to our rest uh, area, and that's where you get refreshments. So pop, cookies, juice, all that good stuff, and uh, our volunteers take care of you. So we have a whole team that looks after you, you know, our staff, um, which is made up of all different types of people, and then the volunteers look after you at the end. So that whole entire process should be one hour. So if you think about it, if you're a man, you can donate six times a year. If you're a woman, you can donate four times a year. So that would be six hours out of your entire year or four hours out of your entire year to save lives. So not, pretty low commitment. Yeah, that's that's not a lot of hours. And you just, you illustrated the part that we all have to remember. You're saving lives. Kristen Unger is joining us, Territory Manager at Canadian Blood Services. There is an app that can kind of make things, and for people who are squeamish when it comes to giving blood, you have to take my word for it because people have said this. It can make it kind of fun. You can track what you've done, what you're doing. Where do we find the app? What's it called? Yeah, so it's the Give Blood app, and it's available on all the you know smartphones and that kind of thing. Um, it's kind of neat because I meet a lot of people who love to track their blood donation number. Uh, so we have people you know that have some really cool high numbers, and that's a, a huge achievement. If you think about you know, say you've donated blood seventy five times. Think of how many people you've helped. You know, you don't know that exact number. You don't know how many patients you've helped. All of that info is confidential, but you know you've really contributed to, you know, people going through a pretty tough time in the hospital. So by using the app, you know, you can track when you're next eligible. You can look at how many times you've come in. You can see your blood type. We meet a lot of people that don't know their blood type. So all of that can be done through your phone. It's a great way to, you know, get those reminders that you're eligible to donate again and then find a clinic location. So we've got lots of donation centers all over the place. It's always kind of a, a pretty easy opportunity for you to go in and give blood. Kristen, I think you have all of us feeling pretty determined right now. I'd, okay, this <laughs> this is good. We'll work something out and I will see you very soon. Thanks so much for the time today. Thank you, Mike, and I look forward to having you in. Kristen Unger, Territory Manager, Canadian Blood Services. So let's get out. Let's donate. Let's take a break. Up next, Jacqueline LaBelle and news. And then we're going to talk about two charges laid. Public nuisance bylaw violations laid against the street preachers. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. So, street preachers. How about them? Anybody a fan? Anybody a supporter? Anybody enjoy having these guys around? I don't see any hands. I don't hear any yelling voices. I don't hear any chants. Street preacher, street preacher. No. It's fine to have your own beliefs. It's fine to even espouse those beliefs. You want to stand at the corner of Richmond Dundas and tell me things as I walk by? I don't have a problem with that. Don't get into my face. And especially, do not get into the faces of females in this city. Because that's what's been happening. In fact, I just happened to mention to somebody by way of a text that the street preachers have been charged. We have had two individuals charged after city council recently passed an amendment to the public nuisance bylaw to address unnecessary interference with the use and enjoyment of public space as a result of abusive or insulting language. So my text was, you will be interested in knowing this. 
the street preachers have been charged. You know what the response to the text was? The people that have called us whores? Yeah, yeah, those ones. That's the kind of thing that these people have been doing. So let's take a moment to understand how we got to this point. Because, as we mentioned, City Council recently passed an amendment to the public nuisance bylaw. And I don't know how much of what was going on with these street preachers pushed toward that amendment. I don't know what comes of this. I don't know what it means. And that's why we have an opportunity to talk with someone who does. Uh, Oris Katolik is the Chief Bylaw Enforcement Officer. If you want to talk more about street preachers, you can. You can give us a call, 519-643-2222. But we get a chance to talk with Oris right now. Oris, thanks for taking some time out for us. I know it's a busy day. We won't hold you too long. But can you take us through the process that led to the announcement and the release that two individuals have been charged? Uh, yes, absolutely. This morning, uh, Stephen Ravbar and Matthew Carapella were charged with violations on multiple occurrences of the what's called personal invective provision of the city's public nuisance bylaw. And what this provision, Mike, is focusing on is abusive language that negatively impacts uh, anyone's enjoyment and use of public space. And so that's something that, hey, we would like to say is, is one of those common sense things, that everybody has the enjoyment and the use of public space. How tricky is it to identify, okay, that, that right there is okay, but that right over there that's happening, that's not okay? Well, that, that's exactly the balance we had to look at because we received uh, well over 75 complaints uh, we went through each complaint, investigated the complainants, and then we had to focus on, you know, what actually is a violation of the personal invective section of the bylaw. We have to recognize that, you know, we do have free speech in Canada, but at the same time, uh, you know, we also have, uh, you know, the freedom to enjoy uh, public space, to enjoy our parks, to enjoy our streets, they're all public space, uh, we pay for them, uh, they're ours. We're talking with Oris Katolik, Chief Bylaw Enforcement Officer, about charges that have been laid against two street preachers. People are immediately going to ask the question, Oris, okay, what do these charges mean? What will the punishment potentially be? Well, the maximum fine under this provision is $10,000, and they were charged on five counts. Uh, so we, we didn't issue tickets. We went straight to summons. So the matter's now uh, before the courts. And our position is that the verbal abuse of women or anyone on public space uh, will not be tolerated in the streets of London. That's why we took the approach uh, earlier in January uh, to indicate to the public that if their enjoyment is being negatively impacted, to call our office. Uh, we will come out and interview you how you've been impacted, what's been said, and we feel that uh, the five charges that will be before the court, uh, we're, we're serious about these charges. It's, it's bad for the downtown. We've had complaints in previous years from visitors from the United States saying, you know, you gotta, your downtown's happening, it's got a good music vibe, but what's with this, these verbal assaults because I'm wearing a dress? or because of the length of my hair, or I'm wearing makeup. 
And that is unacceptable. It's wrong. That's why we took the actions we took today. And you had mentioned a number of complaints. How many complaints again were there? Uh, this year there was over 75. And so now this is to play itself out in the courts, and I guess that's where we can follow it from here? Uh, that's correct. Oris, thank you so much for taking the time for us. Thank you. Have a good afternoon. You too. That is Oris Katolik, Chief Bylaw Enforcement Officer. I'm going to do a happy dance. I am thrilled at this because there are things that, yeah, you can do. There are things you can't do. You should be able to tell the difference. And unfortunately, some people can't. And I don't care what your beliefs are. It does not matter what your beliefs are. You can have your beliefs, but you cannot shove them down the throat of individuals. You cannot make someone so upset that they are shaking because you've accosted them talking about what it is they're doing or what it is they're wearing. You cannot do that. And that was happening here over and over and over again. Maximum fine, 10000 bucks. I don't know if that'll make a difference to these guys. I don't know whether they have the money to pay for things like that. I have no idea. Maybe they don't have the money, and then what? Well, we'll garnish their wages. I don't know what happens from there. We'll have to talk about that once this whole process goes through the courts. But can there be something else? Can we have other punishment? Because what if they pay that fine they just keep going back out? Well, we've got to spread our message. We have the right to do No, you don't have the right to do this. 519-643-2222. Mark, your thoughts on this? Oh, this is uh, like a moth to a flame. I, I, uh, I've studied uh, religion, history all my life, and I can't walk by these guys. And now, I can't comment on these guys in London specifically, but in other, other cities, I, I can't walk by these guys without engaging them. And, and I, uh, I, I've had the police called on me because all I'm doing is taking facts from history and, and, uh, and turning it around. And they're the ones that end up shaking and angry and starting to lose their mind. I, I, won't, I won't say anything inappropriate on the radio. I respect your airwaves. I would take exception with the bylaw officer that says that uh, we have free speech in Canada. Uh, no, we don't. Uh, there's things that I could say truthfully out of history. And uh, you, 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 would, you would be slapped with a lawsuit, especially uh, regarding, say, M103 right now. Yeah, I, I don't want any lawsuits. That's, so thank you for, for, for not taking us in that direction. But, Mark, in terms of people being permitted to do this on the street, is there any parameter, is there any jurisdiction you think that there should be the allowance for this on the street? Well, I think if you're offending people that uh, can't defend themselves, um, I don't think you should be allowed to do that. But uh, I can only comment from my own perspective, and I, I really, really am a free speech advocate, and I think that you should be able to say virtually anything you want. And so if you're going to stand on the street, I, I, if I'd have known about these guys, I drive a truck, if I'd have known about these guys, I'd have come to London to engage them. And I guarantee you, they'd be screaming at me, like losing their mind on me. And, and, and I'm okay with that. But as long as we have free speech, and as your bylaw officer said, as long as I can say what I want, then he can say what he wants. But to women walking by, innocent women walking by, children, families, just out for a good day, no, you can't use foul language and name call, you know? Mark, I know, and I, I take it exactly right. If you want to stand at Richmond and Dundas and you want to espouse whatever beliefs you have, you go for it. No problem. Just don't next, shove it at me. The next time I'm in London delivering fuel, I'm going to find that location and I'm going to 
find those guys. All right. Well, you know what? Sometimes they're not always there. They're in different parts of the downtown. It'll be interesting to see whether they are still in those parts of downtown. Mark, thanks so much for the call. Thank you. 519-643-2222. You can email Mike at 980cfpl.ca. We'll take a break, but I'm, I'm doing a little happy dance, and I hope this takes them away from the downtown. I don't think it will. And then what? That's what we get to next. At least the bylaw has worked. At least we have seen charges, five charges brought. They're going right to the courts. Maximum fine, $10,000. we will see what the courts decide. This is London Live and Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. to talk OHL playoffs in a moment. First, James, you wanted to say something about the Amber Alert. Well, first of all, can I borrow your my pillow? You know what? I, you'll have to you have to pull it out of my hands, but uh, <laughs> you know, I I don't I don't mind giving it up for people to try. Uh, okay, anyways, um so I'm a, I'm a bit upset, so I apologize. I'm try, I'll try to get this out properly, but uh, the thing I've been seeing about that Amber Alert, and I just want to ask you first have you, has AM980 or you or anyone else you know reported that the mother was the cause of the Amber Alert and that she did it with malice? And Are we going back to the one from Markham from the other night? Yes. Uh, I can't say for sure one way or another because I, uh, I can't say for sure that a, a story has been, has been told, but we fact check everything. That much I can tell you. So if right. you and but I if you've got details on that, let's let's be careful about which, which details no, no. we throw out there. No, I don't have details. Okay. In fact, the the what I'm calling about is the lack of details about that because no one has reported whether the mother caused this issue, whether it was a clerical issue, whether anything uh, nefarious happened at all. Okay, but because the father like, was eventually released. Is that it? Without right, charge. Right. right. Okay. When I look on the the Global News uh, Facebook page and mm-hmm. I look at the story, which was posted about two days ago, every comment, nearly every comment, is about the mother deserves to go to jail. She should be charged. Uh, why would she do this? Yada yada yada. Parent, uh, fathers deserve equal rights. Yada yada yada. Which I agree, fathers deserve equal rights. But I have challenged everyone on that thread to show me. And if I'm wrong, please, please come and prove it. Just show me. I will change my mind. I am a scientific person. I believe in facts. Please come and show me that that woman had anything to do with it. And I, my mind will be changed. But until then, please don't post things on the Don't you see that you're doing the exact same thing to the mother that was done to the father? James, you've brought up an excellent point because a lot of times posters go in a completely different direction from facts, and I don't like it. So you've raised a great issue. Thanks for doing that this afternoon. Have a great weekend. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. 519-643-2222. That's right. If you're going to post... Make sure that you do know what you're talking about. Just don't, don't do the willy-nilly stuff. Some of the Facebook posts are hard. Or, you know, I tell you the truth, I stay away from that thing. Facebook drives me nuts. Topic for another day. Right now, let's talk about happier things. OHL playoffs get going tonight for the London Knights. They take on the Windsor Spitfires. And Jake Jeffrey has been nice enough to hang around. Jake and I host a podcast called Around the OHL. New episode out 
and it does have a playoff preview to it, but we're going to talk about a couple of other things. Last night, we had three games. Owen Sound upset Sault Ste. Marie. Saginaw had to come back against Sarnia, and Niagara beat North Bay. Jake, what do you think? Night number one of the playoffs exciting enough for you? It did for three games. There were some uh, pretty good ones. I mean, the Sarnia Sting looked like they were going to surprise Saginaw, and then the Spirit sort of got their act together and came back in that one. We saw Owen Sound sneak out an overtime win up in Sault Ste. Marie. I mean, that was a pretty good one. And then Niagara, we kind of expected that. 2 nothing went over North Bay. But still, it was only 2 nothing. I know, I, yeah. I kind of thought it might be 6-1, 6, yeah, one, six nothing. But, well, it's playoffs. Things tighten up. The London Knights take on the Windsor Spitfires tonight in Game 1 at Budweiser Gardens. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But I want to go back to Sarnia and Saginaw because mm-hmm. there were some questions being asked. If you looked at that game, you've got number 2 seed Saginaw against number 7 seed Sarnia. So that should be one of those cakewalk series. But after the first period, the Sting were out shooting the Spirit 14 to 2. The score was 2 nothing for Sarnia. Everything was going wrong for Saginaw and people started asking a question. Wow, I wonder what's going to happen in the dressing room. And then Saginaw comes out and bing bing bing, they score three quick goals and then fans still look around and go, "Wow, wonder what the coach said in the dressing room. Wow, he must have peeled some paint." That's not the case anymore. I think we need to stand up and realize that. And the head coach of the Spirit, who used to be a coach with the Sting, Chris Lazary, kind of addressed that after the game. Yeah, well, we heard him. He was on a recent episode around the OHL, and yet we talked a bit about his coaching philosophy and how he handles his players, and it's all about instilling confidence. You don't instill confidence when you go and yell at a team. I mean, they just played a 68-game schedule. By this time, you know exactly what your team is capable of. There's no sense in going in and yelling. And I mean, if you need to as a coach to go in there and yell after one period into the playoffs, then you haven't done your job leading up to that. And I believe that it was the quote, I, I'm not quoting it exactly, but Chris Lazary basically said when he was asked after the game, what did you go in and say between periods there to get the guys going? I, I, I didn't say anything. At this point, we have built our veteran and our leadership core throughout the season, and this is what we build them for. This is what we're ready for. And obviously, whatever that group had to say or didn't say in between periods there, it got the guys going, and they were able to uh, come back in a big way and win that game. People always ask that about Dale Hunter as well. Wow, you know, I wonder what Dale Hunter does here. Let me tell you the answer. Dale Hunter doesn't address his players until 24 hours after the game. Mm -hmm. He wants to make sure that emotion is not a part of it. He wants to make sure that he understands what he feels he saw on the bench because things happen fast. He'll go back and look at things on video and it's not like that. You don't coach like that anymore because players don't respond to that anymore. And if you look at some of the most successful teams, that London Knights team in 2004-2005 You didn't need a coach going in doing anything other than diagramming or talking about what you might change on the power play, making little adjustments. If there was somebody not pulling their weight, not playing well, the players knew that they trusted each other enough you could call each other out and saying, look, we're not doing well or you're not doing well. And it was the players themselves that did it. If you can get a team to do that and be comfortable with that, think about a family. Mm -hmm. You know, a brother and sister can easily say, hey... What are you doing? Don't do that. And that's something sometimes friends even can't do for each other. If you have that, you've got something special. Teams want that. 
and we don't want to make it sour that there's no passion from the coaches in between periods because that's definitely not the case, but it's almost picking and choosing when. You don't want to go to that well in the first intermission of game one of your playoffs because, you know, maybe second round comes and you need that little kick in the butt and, well, I've already used my speech from game one of the playoffs. So, so it's an opportunity to see what the players are made of and they're really, really tested here and obviously uh, they showed well in coming back from that one. But there's different ways about doing it. Back, back in the day, you hear about what coaches would come in and they'd kick over a garbage pail. They'd scream at this guy. They'd say, you're garbage. You're never going to be in this league. And that was more or less to see how they handled it. That doesn't happen anymore because most kids are just going to lock up and, and that isn't the way you motivate people nowadays. But what you can do is you can engage them. Hey, guys, we weren't very good that period. What, what do we need to do better? What, you know, there was a couple of these. We, we didn't do this. We need to be better. And there's ways to engage them. Let them figure out what they did wrong. And they obviously did that after 20 minutes and against Sarnia. We were able to figure that out, scoring six goals the rest of the way, uh, getting off more shots than just two through that first opening 20 minutes. So obviously, credit to the Spirits coaching staff there, relying on your veterans. That's what gets you through playoff runs is your 19, 20-year-olds. And if they aren't going to get you through game one of the playoffs, then chances are they're not going to get you through a lengthy playoff run. So it's good to see what you have in those that leadership group. And I think uh, Spirit are quite happy today with that leadership group. Jake Jeffrey in studio with us as we look back at night number one of the playoffs. Let's look quickly ahead yeah. to night number two. We have rivalries like you wouldn't believe. Oshawa and Peterborough go back as far as junior hockey in this province goes. They meet in a best of seven. You also have a rivalry, Guelph versus Kitchener, That's where I think the trip between rinks is 20 minutes. And then you get London and Windsor. So three of the five games tonight have massive rivalries attached to them. Um, in terms in terms of, of kind of a, a London versus Windsor, it is a one versus eight. You've got a, a team learning versus a team that is hoping to go far. What are keys for a team like the London Knights to go far and, and to get through this series effectively? Uh, basically, in listening to how the teams handle it going into it, they handle it the right way. They're not taking the spitfires lightly, and you can't because you need to start your playoffs with the same mentality as if you were facing the eighth seed or the second seed. I know it sort of sounds cliche, but it's not a switch you can turn on and off. And sometimes you see that when a, a, a number one seed, whether whatever level of junior hockey, they kind of go through that eighth seed, and then once they face some competition in the second round, ooh, then they're facing a little bit of trouble because you can't flick that switch when this other team has been playing at that high level. It's very, very tough to do. So they're going to go in. They've been watching a lot of video against the Spitfires, and they want to a tidy four-game sweep, I imagine, would be a goal for London Knights here. And it'd be up to the Windsor Spitfires to extend it any further. Can I see it going too, too long? Probably not. I, the Spitfires just don't have the horses. Maybe the young guys are able to have a big, big night and sort of surprise the Knights on one occasion and make it a five-game series, but I really can't see it going any longer than that. But that's sort of what's typical of a 1-8 matchup, and that's what we see in the OHL now. There's a lot of separation between the top teams and the not teams because teams are rebuilding and teams are really, really going for it. And that's that's the case here. I mean, there's, uh, the London Knights are a clear favorite. Is there a series you're really excited to see what the outcome is because you're not sure what it's going to be? Honestly, not really. Um, in past years, you, you have because usually there's anywhere between six and eight legit contenders. But in past years, we've seen five of those teams in the Western Conference. So at least there is that one marquee matchup. I think back at the last time the Knights and Spitfires met in the first round, they were 4-5 in the Western Conference. Spitfires were hosting the Memorial Cup that year, so they had built up for it. Uh, the Knights had some strong goaltending in Tyler Parsons. They had a, a long list of guys who were going to go play pro as well, so they were pretty good. That's a good first-round matchup where really any team can go either way, and the Knights ended up winning that one in seven games. Spitfires ended up winning the Memorial Cup later that year, so that's a good first-round series. This year just doesn't have that that jumps out for you. I think 
the uh, lower seed teams are really going to have their work cut out for them. Maybe Kitchener gives Guelph a bit of a run. I, I'm interested to see how game one goes tonight. That could be really indicative. Um, I'm surprised it went sound one last night. Um, could I see Sault Ste. Marie sort of being a wake-up call for them and them winning the next four? Yeah, I could see that being a very realistic possibility. Well, it is always interesting. It does seem to be straightforward right now, and we'll check back in maybe about a week and see just how straightforward (laughs) it still is. Jake, thanks for the time. Thank you. Jake Jeffrey in studio with us. Next news with Jacqueline LaBelle. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. London and Windsor tonight, Budweiser Gardens. We have coverage starting at 6.30 on 980 CFPL. And there are tickets available, and good tickets. Unclaimed season ticket holder tickets, which mean lower bowl tickets. You can get those at 519-681-0800. You can drop by the Knights Armories or go online right now to LondonKnights.com. London and Windsor, what do we have this time around? Who knows? Then when these two teams get together, anything can and will happen and does We may not see quite what we saw in 1979, though, because that had to involve the courts. Wait a minute. An OHL playoff series? This is junior hockey. Courts? What, was there a stick swinging? No, not at all. Not at all. It was a far different story. And here to help us tell that story is London lawyer Mike Lerner, who was very heavily involved in it. Mike, uh, first off, can you ever remember a series that has been anything like that one, either before it or since? No, not to my memory. There, there haven't been, and and, and this was really uh, quite uh, uh, a, a bizarre uh, circumstances that uh, led to the final resolution. Okay, well, let's kind of set this up here. The year was 1978-79. That was the season, so this would have been the 1979 part. London and Windsor were meeting in what in those days was an eight-point series. So if you think about best of sevens now, no best of seven. It was the first to earn eight points would go on and play in the next round. And London and Windsor, did they make it all the way to a game eight that year? They did. Uh, and, and in fact, it was uh, the last game uh, when uh, this uh, fiasco occurred involving uh, Dean Hopkins, uh, who was uh, a Knights player at the time. And the referee uh, is, was the late Jim Lever, who actually just passed uh, within the last uh, several months. And there was a penalty call, spearing, was it? It was a spearing penalty, and 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 Dean uh, was given a a five-minute spearing penalty, uh, which uh, attracted in those days a match penalty, and they sat him in the penalty box. Uh, he served his uh, five minutes, and then came back and re-entered the game uh, at that stage. And upon his return, the Knights uh, who were at the time, uh, behind, uh, Dean uh, assisted on uh, two goals uh, that led uh, to uh, London winning 3-2 and London getting the eighth point, uh, uh, allowing them to move on. Okay, so at that point, they were celebrating winning the series. Meanwhile, the Windsor Spitfires were reaching for an OHL rule book and going, wait a minute, didn't that spearing major, didn't that come with a match penalty? And then what happened? 
Well, that's exactly what happened, and uh, I have often uh, teased my friend Wayne Maxner over the years that I knew that he wasn't responsible because uh, somebody had to read the rule book to him at that time. <laughs> uh, uh, but I, I understand that there was, there was frantic uh, review at the front of the bus of the rule book uh, on the, the tra- trip back from London to Windsor, and by the time they got to Windsor, they had... Uh, concluded that uh, Hopkins should have been given a match penalty and was then uh, uh, thrown out of the game and should not have been involved in what led to be the tying and winning goals. Mike Lerner with us from Lerner & Associates as we look back to 1979 and the London Knights and the Windsor Spitfires. So in a case like that, this is still a league. It's still a sport. This is still a case where you could probably call the league officials and say, hey, here's what we noticed. Uh, What do you say? How did this go from the league to the court system? Well, that's that's exactly what happened is... uh, uh, the Windsor people called the league and said, hey, this, is, this shouldn't have happened. And the league at the time, now, I, I believe uh, they directed that uh, the game be replayed. And the game was replayed, and this time London lost. And so that London had gone from celebrating a victory that was going to allow them to move on uh, to the league championship. And so... Uh, the league had decided that uh, they were uh, Windsor had won the series in the replay, and they would move on. And Howard Darwin and Bill Long, and a few others, uh, and I sat around and said, you know, we we won this thing on the ice. It wasn't our fault that they let this guy play. And so we said, uh, we want this reviewed. And if you don't come up with a solution that uh, is acceptable to us, uh, then we'll consider uh, other remedies that might be available to us. And so they convened a meeting on a weeknight uh, down in Toronto at one of the airport hotels, I think it was the Constellation, and the uh, club representatives, club directors uh, were all present, uh, and I was given uh, a period of time to, 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 to explain what our position was. And uh, at one point, uh, I said that if we were unhappy with what the conclusion was, that we would look at what I refer to as other remedies without saying anything more. And I was then asked to leave the room and spent literally the rest of the night drinking coffee with Sherry Basson. And we, uh, he he was... uh, uh, giving me the best of the best Sherry Basson stories, and it was very entertaining. And from time to time, uh, they would come out and say, we're still discussing, we're still discussing. I'd get on the phone and say to Bill, no word yet, uh, but uh, they're still meeting. Uh, And then finally somebody came out and said, you said other remedies. What would you do if you came out of here and you were unhappy tonight? And I said, well, (laughs) as we speak, I have people in my office back in London who are drafting an application for an injunction to hold up the Memorial Cup. And I said, if we don't uh, get uh, a result that is satisfactory to us, 
then we're going to file the injunction, and who knows how long it's going to take, but it may well be that there won't be a Memorial Cup in uh, in 1979. And that struck a chord, and they went back into the room and had some more discussions, and they came up with a proposal that would allow them to have the league final continue in a manner that would not uh, disrupt in any way the scheduling of the Memorial Cup, but would also uh, be acceptable to to London and and uh, the other two teams involved. Uh, so the solution was uh, a round robin, uh, where uh, I, I I don't remember whether it was each team played the other team once or played the other team twice other teams twice, but it, the eventual winner of that series would be the league champion that would go on to the uh, Memorial Cup. And so uh, we got right back to London, and instead of having the usual uh, format for a playoff series, uh, we had three teams involved in a, a, a round robin that uh, ultimately declared the winner that moved on. That's amazing. And in the end, after all of this, let's remember London won the series and then Windsor won the series. In the end, nobody won the next series. Both were eliminated in the round robin. That's exactly right. Uh, uh, It it was almost, uh, I I suppose, poetic justice uh, that uh, we've been involved in this and we did absolutely nothing. Uh, but that's uh, that was the story. Uh, I flew out of here uh, to attend the meeting on uh, the weeknight at about four o'clock. Uh, I came back on the first plane in the morning. Uh, throughout the night, I was not only talking to Bill as to when the su- suggestion came up. I was talking to Howard Darwin, who then owned the team, who was in Ottawa. And saying, well, will you agree to this, or what are the what conditions are you imposing? And so it, it was a very busy night. And as you can imagine, prior to the days of cell phones and uh, texts or uh, uh, email, and uh, the lines were being uh, burnt up uh, between uh, amongst London and Ottawa and Toronto until we finally came up with this this uh, resolution. Mike Lerner, London lawyer, joining us as we look back to the 1979, at that point, not even OHL, but OMJHL, Ontario Major Junior Hockey League series between London and Windsor that actually had challenges that needed the expertise of legal minds in order to sort all of this out. And in the end, London and Windsor both wound up losing out, despite both celebrating a win of a series. Not very often two teams get to celebrate winning the same series. Well, that's right. And what really elevated the emotion is that it would be a gross understatement to say that London and Windsor didn't like each other. There was an absolute antipathy between the two teams. They hated each other. And those were the days uh, when uh, the way that you uh, demonstrated your displeasure was to drop your gloves, drop your stick, uh, take off your helmet, and uh, go at it. And uh, I'd be interested in knowing how many major penalties uh, there were in that series. It was very nasty. 
there was all kinds of stick play that uh, just elevated uh, the animosity between the two teams. And if there wasn't already a rivalry between London and Windsor, uh, that certainly uh, added to it. Uh, that was a that was a crazy year. I remember going down to Windsor on the bus with Bill, and Bill said to me, uh, uh, "I said to Bill, let's go out and have dinner." He says, "No, no, no, no. I never go out to dinner before a game." I said, "Come on, it's right around the corner." So Bill and I went around the corner. We came back to the rink, and there were police cruisers all around the rink. And Bill says, well, "What's going on?" So he went in, and during the uh, the, the, the warm up. Uh, Cicerelli and somebody got into a fight. Players, Brad Marsh came out of the dressing room wearing skates and his hockey pants only. And the police had to break up the brawl. So that, that kind of set the stage uh, for the, uh, the, the expressions of uh, a bad ill will between the two teams. It was a, an absolutely uh, un- unbelievable year that I don't think will ever be repeated. London lawyer Mike Lerner with us. And then your good buddy Wayne Maxner, ironically, winds up in London after all of that. He, he does. Uh, Max uh, ends up back in London. He did a stint coaching uh, the, uh, the Detroit Red Wings. Uh, I, I always used to laugh. I said, after what you did, Max, how could you ever move to London? Uh, and uh, I assumed that he did, he did it under some sort of an assumed name, but uh, he, he denied that. He even uh, had his picture in the paper from time to time. And, of course, uh, many of the fans who remember uh, Wayne will see him uh, fairly regularly uh, in uh, the garden, or the Bud Gardens, uh, still showing his interest in uh, the development of young hockey players and, more importantly, uh, young boys into men. Well, he's a great guy, and that, well, is a series of great stories. Mike, thanks for revisiting 1979 with us. It's my pleasure, and uh, I don't know whether I should say this too loudly, but go Nates, go. Well said. Thank you. You can say it as loudly as you want. Mike Lerner, London lawyer. We're going to take a break. We'll close out with an interview from 980 CKNW, Global News Radio in Vancouver, and it will deal with the sentencing of Jaskarat Sidhu, who was charged and pled guilty in the Humboldt bus crash. This is London Live. You're listening to Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Earlier today, the driver of the truck involved in the bus crash that killed 16 people, the Humboldt Broncos bus involved back on April the 6th of 2018, was sentenced. Jaskarat Sadu. Simi Sarah talked with Sarah Comedina, who is a global news reporter in Saskatchewan, about today's sentencing. Joining us now is Sarah Comedina, who's a global news reporter in Melford, Saskatchewan this morning. Sarah, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. What was the reaction when that sentence was handed down today? Well, it was actually a pretty quiet courtroom as the reaction was handed down. Uh, there there wasn't much reaction or, or any gasping. I think families were pleased, so to speak, that sentence, uh, that, that eight-year sentence was given to Sidhu. He, of course, was given... Um, eight years in prison. This will be served concurrently. He was given eight years for each count of dangerous driving causing death and five years for dangerous driving causing bodily harm. Okay. And so have any of the family members had anything to say at this point? 
Uh, we haven't heard from family members yet, but we are expecting to hear from them as this is just happening underway. We heard about the sentence just uh, about 20 minutes ago, so family members are likely gathering their thoughts right now, but we are expected expecting to hear from them today. Sarah, was jail time expected in this case? Yes, it was. We were expecting uh, to have jail time uh, even this morning. We, we were aware that Sadu was going to be given some sort of sentence. We weren't sure what it was going to look like earlier. The Crown did want to see Sadu's sentence for 10 years, served concurrently in a 10-year driving ban. Um, but the judge, when she was handing out the sentence, said that his guilty plea uh, does play a role in her decision. Right. Did the judge expand any more on why this particular sentence? Yes, she was She was comparing it to some other cases. Before this sentence, the longest sentence for something similar to this was six years. Um, but the judge did talk about how nothing can turn back the clock and that families um, are just torn apart through this bus crash. And of course, with 16 deaths in the, in the bus crash and 13 people injured and also still recovering from those injuries. Um, This played a role in her decision. And uh, she also said when she was handing down the decision that she does hope that um, Sadu and every family involved can find a way to heal. Right. That's going to be the key here as well. Listen, Sarah, thank you for taking the time to chat with us this morning. Thank you. Appreciate that. That's Sarah Comadina, a global news reporter in Melfort, Saskatchewan. And that is Simi Sarah, who is with 980 CKNW in Vancouver. We'll close out the show in a moment. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Out of time on a Friday. Don't forget, tickets available. Nights and Spitfires tonight, thanks to Andrew Graham. London Live brought to you by courtesy Ford Lincoln on Warncliffe Road in London. Happy Friday. News is next. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL.